0: Welcome to the podcast of River City Community Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.rivercitychicago.com. You give life, you are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope, you restore
1: Amen, amen. Thank you to the team, to Marla. Those words are soothing to me right now. I do believe that to the core of my being, that there is none like you, there is none like God, that we could search all eternity long and find nothing but God. So thankful for the way that they have changed the atmosphere in this space and uh, really invited God to move powerfully. Uh, Good morning. It's good to be with you all. We'll jump in in a moment. Um, I do want to um, share something that's kind of come up for me and for us and ask for prayer for it. You know, last year when the opportunity came up for me to share some of our story and write the book, White Awake, you know, for those who've been part of our community, I've always felt kind of sheepish about it for a lot of different reasons. Um, One of many of which being having a white guy talk to white people about issues facing people of color has a lot of, uh, 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 contradicting kinds of realities to it, right? And um, it didn't make a lot of sense. But based on kind of the journey we were on internally, it felt like there was kind of a call to it based on kind of the affirmation of a lot of the folks that we really lean on. It felt that that we should do it. So we did it. That came out in September. I have very actively not promoted it. I've not gone on book tours. I'm not trying to bring a ton of attention. Uh, Nonetheless, it continues to kind of get into a lot of circles. One of the more surprising things, I'm actually genuinely surprised it's taking root in Christian circles, because this has historically not been something that's easy to talk about in particularly white evangelical spaces. I could say more on that. What I really want to emphasize, surprisingly, it's been taking off in a lot of um, secular circles, for lack of a better word. All I mean by that is just not church circles, that in a lot of business settings, a lot of, um, you know, kind of places where faith is not usually part of the language, it's, it's, it's being interacted with. And so another kind of just unusual opportunity came up. Uh, I've been asked to join the um, new show tomorrow morning on WGN, um, which is the top-ranked news show in Chicago, and Larry Potash, I guess, is the top-ranked anchor, and so he's a white anchor who wants to talk about, he's read white, Awake, um, there's a black woman that works at WGN who's a big fan of it, and she read it, and she passed it to him, and he's read it, and so he wants to talk about that, which is just wild to me on a lot of levels, and so um, I was praying this yesterday, praying about this yesterday with my mentor, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil, and one of the things she really brought attention to, I just hadn't thought about, she said, "She said, you know, it's just so unusual that Books written by pastors for Christian people are being talked about in non-Christian spaces, especially on something as sensitive as this. Right, that, um, like the whole the whole thesis behind that is not really talking about race, though it is. It's talking about the need to have a biblical perspective on race. That there needs to be a way that faith and Christ shape the way we think about it. And we just we're getting reminder after reminder. You know, I appreciate Brandon's words there in prayer and praise and. You know, I think it is worth mentioning when these things happen. This is not about politics. This is you could, There's going to always be Christians who fall on different sides of these things. It's not about talking about politics. But one of the vocabulary, we're trying to develop some common vocabulary here to be able to properly diagnose what's happening in our country. And so we've used the language from Brian Stevenson a lot, the, 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 the phrase, the narrative of racial difference. Say that with me, will you? The narrative of racial difference. The narrative of racial difference is, is a shorthand way to describe the system of race, one element of the system of race, that the system of race doesn't just recognize differences in people. That's actually a biblical concept, one that one done, when done well can be good. The, the narrative of racial difference looks at races and, a, and assigns human value to them. It says that there's a racial hierarchy and that your actual intrinsic value is tied to where you fall on that. And we actually got one of the most clear articulations of the narrative of racial difference we've had in quite some time this week when President Trump put words to some of his thoughts around immigration that and used an expletive to describe Africa, to describe Haiti, which just that alone would confirm the narrative of racial difference, right, that, there's, that there is less value in the people who are coming or already here from certain kinds of places, but then took it all the way to the end by saying, why can't we have more immigrants from places like Norway, right, which, I, I mean, I, I, it's, it, it's, it's a literal articulation of the narrative of racial difference, that, that people from certain kind of places have more value because where they fall on the racial spectrum, people in other places have less value, and I mean, I know you wouldn't even be here if you... Obviously, a group like this already disagrees what that represents. What I'm especially hoping for is to help for all of us to get better at being able to diagnose why that's problematic because according to the Bible, right, humankind is what is most precious to God. And whenever humankind, the, the, the dignity of a human person or group of people is under assault, that's a biblical issue. That's a very serious biblical issue. And um, when values, so when we're saying some people are superior, some people are inferior, that's a very serious biblical issue that, that is not any longer just a social thing. It's a deeply spiritual thing. And so all that to say, I'm asking for prayer because I'm sure we'll talk about some of that stuff. But I'm, uh, you know, we're going through the book of Acts. Last week, we went through the story of Philip. And um, the first part of it, we're going to go to the second part of it today. And I highlighted this last week. My favorite verse is Acts chapter two, chapter 8, verse 12. It says that when Philip went to Samaria, this is the way that Luke summarizes what he did. He went as a witness, and he talked about Christ and Christ's kingdom. That was the mission, was to go talk about Christ and talk about Christ's kingdom. I feel like that's what I'm supposed to be doing. There's this backdrop of talking about some very real things that are happening in our country, but ultimately it's a proclamation of Christ and his kingdom. I, I'm stunned, really, borderline, that in such, I don't care about the status of that it's WGN or anything, but I do care about the fact that there's a lot of folks who are not currently necessarily thinking about this through lenses of faith and I and we get the opportunity to speak into that at some level, so two things, I'm asking for prayer, I really genuinely mean that, I need to have clarity of thought but I also just want to acknowledge the fact, whenever I do something like this, I hope you don't think I'm seeing myself as disconnected from community, I realize when I do something like this, it falls back on you <laughs> for good or for bad, and I hopefully won't be bad, um, but Um, last time I did do some public remarks on this stuff around race, you know, the feedback was so visceral and immediate that we had to have undercover police here the next week because there was such a high volume of threats. So I never know how these things are going to go, and I don't presume to believe that I'm somehow just representing myself when I do that. So I realize we're all in this together, and I'm consistently trying to understand my own blind spots in this and pray through this together and then also need prayer. So tomorrow morning at 8.15 WGN. Sound good? All right, thank you. With that being said, let us continue. So, yeah, as Brandon mentioned, it seems like there's a handful of new folks. We're glad to have you here. Um, We believe coming to know God through Scripture is one of the core dynamics of understanding God and being bound together with God in relationship. So we've been going through the book of Acts. That's chronologically the, the fifth book in the New Testament. There's four gospel accounts about the life of Jesus in the book of Acts, which looks at the church being the church and God calling his people to be the people of God and to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we did chapters 1 through 7 in the fall, and our goal is to get through chapters 8 through 17 between now and Easter. So um, if you've got your Bibles, open them up, if you will, to Acts chapter 8. And we'll stand again in just a second here to read it to give a little bit of context. The, one of the highlight verses in the opening chapter of the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verses 8, and Jesus says to his disciples, Jesus is in this resurrected state. He's defeated death. He's in, he's in, their, he's in their space as a resurrected person. And he sends, them on, he sends them out on mission. He sends them to be commissioned. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses. He wraps it all up around that word witness. And we've talked about kind of the holistic nature of being a witness to Christ. He says, I'm going to send you out as my witnesses. And then interestingly, he doesn't leave it in a general state. He adds four delineations to it. And he says, you're going to go with my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And when you watch the book of Acts unfold, chapters 1 through 7 gets the first two of them. Um, It shows how the church becomes a witness to the resurrected Christ in Jerusalem and in Judea. Those two are not real far geographically, very culturally similar, both Jewish-centric, but lots of challenges nonetheless. So Luke, who is the author of this book, meticulously records some of the church growing and bearing witness to the resurrected Christ in Jerusalem and Judea. Um, Act chapter 8 becomes really significant as now we see the last two pieces of it. Uh, we see that um, first Samaria received the gospel, which, you know, we talked about that in depth last week. You'll kind of have to listen to that one to hear the significance of that. That gets to the third part. And then this part we're going to see today is where um, Luke, or where Philip talks with uh, an Ethiopian um, finance minister. And in a lot of ways, this represents the last part of the Great Commission. This is the ends of the earth uh, I didn't know this until I'd studied this the first time, but uh, it, it, for a lot of folks in that day and age, that was kind of uh, Ethiopia was actually the metaphorical ends of the earth. That was about as far as people knew where it went at that time. So this actually is uh, pretty symbolic, as Luke records it, that it actually is the gospel going to the ends of the earth by this Ethiopian man uh, responding to the risen Christ. And church legend is very strong that this is the one who brought it back with him and where kind of revival started with him. So that's what we're going to read. That's some backdrop of it. Um, we're going to jump into the middle of the story, but uh, of Philip's story, but where it turns to the Ethiopian. So let's stand together, if, we, if you will. We're going to read verse 26 through the end of chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasure, the Kandaki, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in the chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I think what's most helpful, at least been for me on this one, is to just kind of treat it as almost like three scenes of a story. Uh, there's there's just in chronological chronological order there's this first scene where we just get this kind of introduction and intersection of the lives of Philip and the Ethiopian officials so we're going to start there that'll probably be the longest then the second scene is when um Philip joins him in the chariot and they talk about this passage from Isaiah and then the third scene is this baptismal response that happens so uh let's let's make our way through these let's start once again with uh kind of reconnecting with who Philip is and then kind of looking at who this Ethiopian is. So first Philip, let's look at who is Philip. We saw him about, about him a little bit last week. We didn't talk too much about him. So Philip's story is actually, he's most pronounced here in chapter eight, but his story really begins in chapter six. In chapter six, a big part of the development of the early church is that as there's all these different kinds of folks with all these different kinds of needs coming to the body, one of the ones Luke zooms in on is that there's two different groups of widows who are reliant on the early church for provision. There's the group of widows who are from Jerusalem locally. There's a group of refugee widows who are from Judea. There's this kind of power dynamic in terms of how the food is being distributed to these two groups. And so in response to this dispute, the apostles say, let's elect some leaders from both of these groups that have already been recognized as godly leaders full of spirit and wisdom. And so, seven deacons get um, elected out of that. Two of them we see quite a bit about in chapter 7 and 8. Stephen is one that we see about, and Philip is one of them. So, these are two of the seven deacons. So, Stephen, his story takes up chapter 7. There was something about the way he both lived out and proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ that was extremely upsetting to the religious authorities. So, he is stoned and executed in chapter 7, which is what Kind of sets the stage for chapter 8. There's a persecution in response to this, and the believers get scattered from Jerusalem during that time. So that's Stephen, presumably one of Philip's buddies. Philip is another one of the deacons. And so Philip now um, isn't really intentionally going out on mission as much as running for his life, like a lot of the other believers are. But as he's scattered, as he's the actual literal word for this that scattered is diaspora He's diasporad. He, be, he becomes part of this Jewish diaspora. And as he goes out, he gets in tune in a mighty way with the Spirit of God. And he goes first to Samaria, which was super important in the Jewish history and super important to Jesus. And he proclaims Christ and the kingdom there, and the apostles come and kind of build on the work that Philip does. And so now we see part two of Philip. We see that um, you know, he's going to once again be very spirit-led, respond to this. We'll look more at him in a moment. Um, just in case for those of you kind of on the Bible student side, he doesn't show up again until chapter 21. Um, he's in chapter 21, verses 8, where Luke makes sure to mention that it's a very Spirit-filled home that Philip lived in because he's got all daughters, and Luke says all four of them um, prophesy in the Spirit on a regular basis. So, um, so that's, that's Philip that we're meeting. The one who we're being introduced to for the first time now is this Ethiopian man. And in just a short amount of time, we're actually told quite a bit about him. So, obviously, we're told he's Ethiopian. Uh, There's just there's there's not a hundred percent agreement of exactly where Ethiopia was at that time. It probably wasn't exactly where the current boundaries of Ethiopia are, but it was certainly Africa. It was certainly that kind of probably general vicinity. So, this is a black man from Africa. Um, So we know he's from Ethiopia. One of the things Luke's clearly emphasizing: he is super successful. Right. Um, this is, I mean, he's basically in a CFO position. He is the treasurer of the entire finance department of the queen of Ethiopia, All right? So a very, very powerful man, um, and we see from the fact that he's a eunuch that another thing, he's not just powerful, but he's paid a huge price to get to that position. Uh, eunuchs in that, there's a lot of agreement on this, you, uh, that if you are a man working in the place where the queen or the princesses were. If you were a man who was not already part of the royal family, um, there was a price to be paid for you to move up that ladder. And that was you had to be castrated. So that there was no chance of you impregnating one of the women or the queen herself, whether it would be consensual or forced. And so that was the price for moving up that ladder. And even though it's a culturally unique one back then, I don't think it's actually all that different to A lot of the folks who have to pay big prices to climb corporate America, whatever that would be in this day and age, right, that we're kind of seeing that before he goes on the spiritual search, he's paid a tremendous price to move his way towards the top of the ladder. So he's from Ethiopia. He's successful. He's paid a very big price. And now what we see here is he is on some kind of a spiritual journey. (laughs) He is on some kind of a spiritual journey. Um, It's estimated that it probably would have been close to 1,000 miles, to travel from wherever he was at in Africa to Jerusalem to go on this spiritual quest. So I mean, think of a thousand, I'm a thousand miles crazy long on an airplane, right? a thousand miles on a chariot. I mean, uh, it, it's, 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 it's a super intense trip that he comes. And I think there's, there's almost this kind of play happening here on the different ways that the Spirit of God works, right? Philip plays a big part in that he's listening to the Spirit and going out on mission. But really, before the gospel ever went to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth came looking for the gospel. Right. This was not actually a missionary sent to the ends of the earth. It's somebody seeking the Christ from the ends of the earth who comes to Jerusalem, right? And so, that's not to be missed in the story, the significance of the depth of spiritual pursuit that um, that the Ethiopian finance minister is going through. And so, we're going to move on to the second scene, but if, if we were going to draw it, I actually do think there are a couple of very tangible lessons from this. I think um, Philip, in, in a way that's really unique in the book of Acts when you look through this, the intersection of Philip and the Ethiopian finance minister, um, draw out a couple of just the really unique qualities about how God works, right? Um, on Philip's side, I've been reflecting on this a lot just because it reminds me so much of my journey in my early 20s. In my early 20s, when I really came back to following God seriously, like I was so eager to know what God wanted for my life. I would think all the time, like, what does God want me to do? I just wish God would show me what to do, and I was ready to say yes, whatever it was. I think, you know, perhaps I would have been exposed, but I, thought, I think I was ready to say yes. So there's, there was this youthful kind of sense of, like, God, show me what you want me to do, Right. Of course, like, God very rarely answers that question in a long-term way, right? The way God tends to work much more is God is fluid, and we come to know the heart of God, we come to know the character of God, we come to know the nature of God, and then there's this kind of spirit-led peace that you see one aspect at a time, right? And I imagined Philip being like that 22-year-old that I was, asking, God, what do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with my life? And, of course, God didn't answer, but could you imagine what the answer would have been? Well, all right, Philip, here's how it's going to go. There's going to be a resurrected Jesus who comes, and in the wake of his resurrection, the church is going to take off in the city of Jerusalem. And when it does, there's going to be this huge dispute between two groups of widows, and something called deacons is going to be formed. And when that gets formed, you're going to be one of the seven who goes, unfortunately, your best friend's going to get killed in front of you, and you're going to go running for your life when that happens. But when you do... I'm going to steer you first towards Samaria and then towards this Ethiopian, Ethiopian finance minister. Does that sound good? Sound like a good life plan for you, Philip? Right? I mean, it would have been overwhelming. It would have been ununderstandable, right? Like God was clearly preparing Philip the whole time, and yet it wasn't in this GPS map next step kind of a way, right? And I just simply say that to say, I think his, his story is so emblematic of how the Spirit of God works in our lives. Right? There's not this fill in the dot, here's what's next, here's what's next, here you know exactly we're going to get to the end. And yet, it's not that God's not moving and directing either. It's this intersection of, of we trust the heart of God, we trust the spirit of God, we trust learning the nature of God. And then God, we, we do our best to be, this is the unique, I'm going to put two words on each of them. For Philip, I would put sensitive and bold. That's what I think we see with him. He's sensitive to the spirit. And he's bold to move once he senses God is moving in that kind of a way, in a way that he couldn't have predicted, right? These things appear, and then he responds. And so he senses the Spirit in bold. And that, that kind of shows one half of this amazing interaction. And then I think what the Ethiopian finance minister shows is the biblical thread that's throughout the Scriptures of this the, the really huge importance of spiritual hunger of spiritual hunger, so often we want answers, we want resolutions, we want clarity. And so often what happens instead is the Bible says, trust the hunger, trust the actual longing itself. Because there's something about longing, there's something about hunger that even though it doesn't always manifest in answers right away, it takes us into the heart of God. It takes us to the heart of God. This Ethiopian eunuch is serious about finding and probably hit a lot of, lot of setbacks along the way. Right? I mean, his perseverance is pretty extraordinary because the Old Testament law said that eunuchs couldn't participate in the Christian community, right? So, I mean, he had a whole lot of reasons, right? He was culturally an outsider. He was, you know, in terms of who he now was physically, he was an outsider. Um, he didn't really understand fully. Uh, it, you know, you presume if he's going this far to find the Christian God, he's done his work of kind of looking elsewhere, and he is, he is dead serious about trying to understand <laughs> who this God is that he believes at some level must have revealed himself to the Ethiopian finance minister for him to even go that direction in the, in the, in the first place. And then it's tied to humility. It's hunger and humility, right? Um, he's clearly a capable man. He's clearly a powerful man. And yet, um, when the opportunity comes for Philip to join him, he says, come, help me understand this. Help me understand this, right? Like, my self-knowledge has only gotten me so far. So I'm trusting my instincts, trusting my hunger, and yet I need some folks to help me understand this. And you put these together and you get a real biblical template of kind of a powerful way to live in the spirit, of the sensitivity and the courage, boldness of Philip, and then the hunger and humility of the Ethiopian finance minister. They merge together and you get this really beautiful encounter that, you know, becomes the first signpost of the gospel of Jesus Christ going to all the ends of the earth. So I'd say that's the first kind of big scene is looking at who these two characters are and the uniqueness of this intersection. All right, let's go to scene two, which is the two of them talking about the text. And I actually think it's meant to be funny. I don't know if we see how funny this is when we first read it. But let me read again verses 29, through 29 to the first part of 30. It says, The Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. This is why I think it's pretty funny. Um, A chariot is not a stationary thing, right? This is not a man sitting at a coffee shop, you know, and God says, go sit next. I mean, that would be bold enough to say, right? Go sit next to this man sitting stationary at a table, reading something, ask him what he's reading. That would be bold enough. A chariot's moving. He's traveling. It says he's on his way back. Right, and so there's almost the sense. Spirit says to Philip, "Go." Enjoying join it. So, right, the chariots movement. And so it says Philip ran up and heard this. So you've got this like literally funny like chariot movement, Philip trying to be all kind of, you know, normally, like, hey, you know, running out of breath. Hey, hey, what's up? A really powerful man in there that's got lots of bodyguards who could probably kill me at any moment. Uh, what, do you ha- what do you happen to be reading in there? <laughs> you know, running, trying to keep up with it. I mean, it's as awkward as awkward can be. And I think pretty funny that um, that's how the gospel gets to the end of the earth for the first time is Philip is jogging, trying to keep up with his chariot. So the whole thing is, is pretty funny in how it comes to be. But uh, there's this kind of perfect intersection, the boldness and sensitivity of Philip matches up with the hunger and humility of this Ethiopian finance minister. And so the Ethiopian man invites him in and says, H- here's what I'm reading, um, which again shows probably both the um, creativity and just determination of the Ethiopian man, there were very few parchments of scripture that were around at that time because it was an oral tradition, so it was it was a historical find if you actually had parchments of scripture. So for him to be reading a passage from Isaiah like that, um, he, he worked hard, he figured out a way to get his hands on scripture, so he 's reading a parchment from the book of Isaiah. And in the part that he's focusing on, the part of Isaiah where he's focusing on, you know, you can go back and look at this. This is in Isaiah chapter 53 where he's reading. But the part that the Ethiopian man is looking at is this idea of Jesus Christ not only as king, which is, has been a big theme of the book of Acts till now, but Jesus Christ as lamb that was sent to the slaughter. This is the part that the Ethiopian man is just transfixed on, which says so much about what God is doing in his life, right? He's this Ethiopian man. He's already reached the top, right? I mean, you can't go much higher than being the finance cabinet minister, you know, for the entire queen's government. He's experienced what we want to call it worldly success, right? He's experienced personal fulfillment, and yet he's wrestling with sin, right? He's wrestling with guilt. He's wrestling with forgiveness. He's saying, how does God look at somebody who's a sinner, maybe done some things good, some things how does God do that? And he's been, he's been led to the heart of the Christian gospel, which is this idea that Jesus Christ came as a ransom, as a sacrifice, as an atonement to take the sin of humankind upon himself and like a lamb led to the slaughter to give himself up unjustly to the authorities. And this Ethiopian man is trying to understand. Wow, who is this? What kind of a God would do this? And Philip comes in, and I don't think Philip says really much more than what the Ethiopian man did. He was just right there. He just needs somebody to confirm it. Like, yes, that Jesus that everybody's talking about, that Jesus who has launched this movement that is sweeping through Jerusalem and Judea right now, that Jesus is the one who fulfilled the messianic prophecies to come and live the perfect life, and then more importantly to say, this, this sin, the stain of sin, the identity of sin, the penalty of sin, the punishment of sin, it all is going to come upon myself. And the vivid imagery of Isaiah that like a—that yeah, by his stripes we are healed, but like a lamb led to the slaughter, that's how the sacrifices happens and how we're able to take on this forgiveness and be united to God through Jesus Christ. And Philip just simply affirms that which... The Ethiopian man has pretty much come to discover and just needed confirmation that that's who this text is talking about is Jesus. And you know, I, I the purpose is straightforward, but just to name it, you know, Luke, who's writing this book, wants us to understand that to see Jesus fully, we've got to wed both sides of his experience. Luke has focused very heavily up to this point on Christ the King, Christ that is resurrected, Christ that is over human history, Christ that is sovereign. Um, this has been a that's been the important one that that Luke has really focused on. But there's also been this thread of Christ the Lamb, Christ the one who died on a cross, Christ the one who opens the door to forgiveness when we repent and put our faith in God through Jesus Christ. And Luke is showing us once again that this isn't just some doctrinal test that you're supposed to pass on your way to becoming a Christian, that this is transformational, that this, in fact, we'll see it in a moment with the baptism, but that when you see the Christ fully for who he is, The one who died on the cross to forgive sins, the one who's resurrected and raised and is over human history. When you hold on to that full Christ, it's meant to change the way your trajectory of your life works, right? It completely changes the trajectory of this man's life, and it just continues to reinforce what's happening all throughout the book of Acts, that it's the proclamation of Jesus and his kingdom that is the life-changing message that heals human hearts, that resets destinies, that helps people find a new sense of identity, which is just a huge, if I had more time, I'd go into that too, because there's just so much around identity in this. But that's, that's the basic premise of the second scene. This is the Ethiopian man on the search for understanding how God forgives, how it is that God can bring people into the family of God. and He finds this passage by Isaiah and finds new life, new hope, new transformation within it. And Luke wants us to know that's where our life and our transformation and our new hope comes as well. Amen? And then we get this last scene, baptism, and I'm going to read this again just because it's, I'm going to quote um, Dr. Willie Jennings in a minute, who's a professor from Yale. Uh, he calls this the most, um, um, actually, let me make sure I get the words that I don't want to miss. Um, yeah, he, does. he calls, he calls this, the, this the one of the most erotic interactions um, between God and humankind in the Bible, and he means that in a good kind of a way that, like, th- there's such an emotive response to the way that 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 he meets them. So let me read the text first. Uh, again, verse thirty six. So as they travel along this road, so they've just had this conversation, that the Ethiopian eunuch now is having confirmation in his through, you know, kind of a apostolic figure of what he knew in his own heart that Jesus had called him to himself. So they're traveling along the road, they come to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? He gave orders to stop the chariot right then. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And so baptism is this response to the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this, let me just read this short quote from, uh, from Dr. Willie Jennings, how he says it. He says, I just, I just love this. Let me just say the first sentence first. He says, the eunuch wants God as much as God wants him. Right. Um, there's more to it, but let me just stay there for a second, because uh, that, that, it feels right to me that that's what's happening here. It's like the, the love story finally matches, right? like God was pursuing him, and the eunuch was pursuing God, and they were on this path towards each other, and in this moment, their love has found each other. The eunuch wants God as much as God wants him, and then Jenny says, they will wait no longer for each other, They will wait no longer for each other. And then he adds this this additional commentary. We must not run past this powerful and even erotic gesture of Luke in this story. The chariot pulls to the side of the road. The journey stops. They descend from the chariot into the water and Philip baptizes the Ethiopian. A new journey has begun. And the imagery of baptism is meant to be just that. It's not a to-do. It's not a thing that's... You know, you're good if you did it, you're bad if you it, did It's not about that. It's about this gesture, this symbol, this sacrament that seals that truth that God loves us and we love God. And the Apostle Paul in, in, in Romans 6, he uses this imagery of like baptism is what reminds us that Jesus is in our life, that he's come for us and that he loves us, but it's also what convinces us that we are now part of his life that in the same way that he died and rose again. So we have experienced death to the sinful side. We are not defined by our sin any longer once we've met Jesus. And instead, we're defined by the new life in Christ, the active, alive, risen Christ who very much comes into our hearts, but more importantly, calls us into his heart. And who says, follow me, be part of me, be loved by me, and join me in the expression of this love. And I love what it represents in the story. And... Um, I just love I it's just such a good reminder about the importance of the sacrament of baptism and um, I, I felt like it would be wrong for me not to say, you know, if there's anybody in here who you have met Jesus and you've not been baptized yet, I hope you will do that, and I will do that, and I'd love to do one soon. <laughs> so this is an open invite. If there's a, if there's a couple of you that are ready to get baptized, you see this and you go, Matt, I, I want to do that same thing. I want to, I want to symbolize this fact that God found me and I found God, that God loves me and I love God. Um, will you just please let me know afterwards, and we'll do one again soon. It would just be great. And it's baptism is supposed to be a communal event, not only because we come to come to express that love of Christ in community, but it reminds the whole community of this pattern, that we have died with Jesus in his death into the sinful side, and we've risen out on the other side as something new, and that our identity is found in him. That doesn't erase our identity, but the fullness of who we are, for Philip, for Steve, for David, the fullness of who we are can't be understood when it's not seen through the prism of the resurrected and risen Jesus Christ. And it's meant to be a celebratory thing to remember who we are and that love that God has for us and we have for God. And so I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to finish with, I haven't heard this or sung this in a while, but we're going to sing this, The Air I Breathe. And uh, I I think where Luke ends this account in chapter 8 with the baptism of Philip, uh, with Philip joining the Ethiopian treasure here in this baptism moment where you have this almost erotic kind of thing where this man says, I love God. God loves me. Let's do this right now. (laughs) And like baptism is a powerful way to do that, but worship's a way to do that too, right? When we just step into that moment, we say, God loves me. I love God. I I want to be defined by God. I want God to be, you know, I want God to pull me into God's heart and family. And so as we sing this, let's just remember like this love, this passion, this call, this is meant to be the air that we breathe. Amen.
0: This is the air I breathe, this is the air I breathe, your whole my day